Welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. This is John Murphy, and along with my co-host, Leah Kaufman, we're pleased to have you join us for another podcast. I'd ask Leah to tell us a little bit about what's scheduled for podcast number three. You may recall that in podcast number two, Dr. Alyssa Panich called decellularized scaffolds one of regenerative medicine's early clinical successes. These scaffolds, which are usually derived from animals, are the mix of collagen and growth factors that are left over after the animal cells are removed. If placed in a wound, these substances seem to prompt the growth of normal tissue rather than scar tissue. In today's podcast, we'll talk with Dr. Stephen Badalak. He's the researcher who discovered the first decellularized scaffold. It's called small intestinal submucosa. Let's bring that interview to you now. Today on Regenerative Medicine Today, we're joined by Dr. Stephen Badalak. He's a research professor at the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine, and he has appointments as well in the departments of surgery and bioengineering at the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, 20 years ago, when Dr. Badalak was at Purdue University, he made a discovery in his lab that has now treated more than 300,000 people and helped them regain quality of life. Dr. Badalak, what is it that you found in the laboratory back then? Well, it was one of these serendipitous uh, events where we were working on one project and saw something that wasn't directly related to that project but had implications in wound healing. And, and specifically what we were working on at the time was a method for treating patients with heart failure. It was called cardiomyoplasty, where, and in fact, one of the pioneers of that procedure was right here in Pittsburgh, uh, Dr. George McGovern up at Allegheny General, who happened to, we were working with at the time. It involved um, translocating the muscle from your back a muscle from your back into the chest, wrapping it around the heart and stimulating it to squeeze in synchrony with the heart. And it, it actually had a lot of uh, potential. And once we found that that worked, the idea then we had the idea that, well, maybe we could create an assist heart by having such a muscle contract around a blood-filled tube separate from the heart and actually have two hearts pumping. So we had to then identify what could we use as a blood-filled tube. And uh, we were sitting around a lunch table one day and, and said, well, what in the body looks like a blood vessel that's not a blood vessel? And uh, the intestine is long and a lot of it. And uh, we had the kind of crazy idea that I uh, wonder if it might work. And we actually took a piece of intestine in a dog model and we replaced part of the dog's aorta with it. The aorta is the main blood vessel that runs down uh, away from the heart down toward the legs. And uh, the very first experiment happened to work. That doesn't happen with me very often, but that one happened to work. And we uh, noticed that not only did it uh, carry blood, as we were hoped it would, without causing blood clots, but after a period of time, several months, when we would look at these intestines turned into blood vessels, they actually looked like a blood vessel. They weren't just a piece of intestine that had formed a conduit, they actually started to look like a blood vessel. This is contrary to the way uh, we understand wound healing to occur or remodeling to occur in tissues. And so it became a project of its own. And we isolated the layers from that intestine that seemed to be responsible for this remodeling. And it turned out that it was uh, layers that were mainly the submucosa of the small intestine. So we coined the term small intestinal submucosa, SIS, and, and then it took off from there. 
well, first of all, describe to me what, where that layer is. You know, how many layers are there and where does that layer exist? And well, the, the, there's a lot of layers in the intestine, but if you start in the middle of the, of the intestine where the food is, there's an absorptive layer called the mucosa, and then beneath it, there's a submucosa, and then there's muscle layers uh, on the outside. Now, there's some additional sublayers in there, but those are the main ones. And if you take off the mucosal layer on the inside and take off the muscle layer on the outside, one's left with that middle layer. Now, interestingly, as we think back, and I wish I was smart enough at the time to think about it, that's an interesting location for, for tissue because... It, it supports what happens to be one of the most rapidly dividing cell populations in the body. The, the intestinal lining turns over completely every five days. So that submucosal layer must have the goodies in it to, to support that sort of cell repopulation with that frequency. And in addition, if you think about the intestines, they have to re- be able to respond to injury quite, quite quickly because if we have injured intestines that don't heal quickly, we would not survive, especially if they leaked. We'd get infections and other things would happen. So what's happened uh, apparently is through evolution, uh, mammals and other vertebrate species have developed a very efficient wound healing mechanism in the intestine, and it looks like the submucosa was part of that efficient wound. In other words, it heals differently than your muscle tissue. Mm -hmm. Which would form scar tissue, say, if it were. Right, exactly. And that's the other point. If you heal with scar tissue in the intestine, you get a, a blockage. So it looks like in the intestine, the healing not only is quicker with a very supportive substrate for cell growth, but it heals in a mechanism that, that minimizes or even eliminates scar tissue because, because it can't heal any other way. And so we got lucky, and we, we identified this tissue and started moving it into other areas of the body and found that a lot of those properties we could transfer to different body systems. I see. So it's like a tissue transplant. You're taking sort of one environment, putting it into an environment that it doesn't occur in naturally, but in doing so, you're prompting a process of healing and regrowth. That's exactly, that's very well stated. And um, interestingly, once we started reproducing this result and showing that it, that it wasn't just a fluke, um, we then said, well, if we're ever going to treat patients with this, there's just no way that a surgeon or a physician is going to harvest a piece of your intestine and prepare this layer and then go treat some injury. So it had to be an off-the-shelf type product. So the, the next challenge was to say, well, if we take, can, can we take SIS from one species and put it in another? Actually, first we thought, can we take it from another member of the same species, kind of like heart transplants mm-hmm. and kidney transplants and so forth? And we found that that worked. Uh, but then said, well, at least if this works, I wonder if we can even cross species lines. And we quickly found that that was indeed the case. Wow. Yeah, it was pretty, um, that in it, that again surprised us because now we're taking tissue from one species and putting it in another. And we not only aren't seeing, did not see rejection, but we saw this constructive remodeling response. But in those early experiments, what sorts of things other than the aorta were you able to remodel with SIS? Well, we did blood vessels for a long time. We did large diameter and small diameter blood vessels, and we did veins. Uh, but then we moved into musculotendinous tissues. And this was, a, um, uh, again, one of these just sort of <laughs> lucky uh, sort of experiments, or at least the choice, because 
uh, one of my roles at uh, Purdue University was as the team physician for the athletic department. So uh, we were standing on the, I was standing on the sideline of a football game on a Saturday afternoon with our team phys- uh, orthopedic physician. And uh, we got, and we were getting beaten pretty badly. And to show you how badly, he started talking about my research on the sideline of a football game. Well, that you know tells you how kind of football team we had at the time. And uh, so we got to talking about this regenerative response we were seeing. He says, "Well, you ever tried it for tendons?" And I said, "No." And then, and he said, "Well, why don't we?" And so the very next week, we then took this SIS material and tried to replace portions of the Achilles tendon on a dog and the anterior cruciate ligament uh, in, in other dog as our model again and found that it worked great. And so that sort of then said, okay, now what, you know, what are our limits? We started exploring all different tissues after that. Next thing we tried was the urinary bladder and reconstruction of the lower urinary tract. We tried to start trying in skin wounds. And um, this, now, this, now we're talking about a period of years, five, six years of work. And we found that no matter where we put this biologic scaffold that we called SIS, it induced a constructive remodeling response. Meaning that the correct layers of, you know, different types of tissues grew where they were supposed to. Right. We could take the small intestinal submucosa and put it into the uh, aorta, and it would form a normal intimal layer, which is the inner layer, and a normal muscular wall like our artery has. If we took the same SIS material and put it in as Achilles tendon, it didn't form any of those tissues. It formed tendon tissue. If we put it in as a urinary bladder, it didn't form tendon tissue. It formed smooth muscle of the urinary bladder with the appropriate inner lining. And in none of these locations did we see any significant scarring. So we realized over the course of these early years that we were dealing with a, a potential mechanism to change the what, what I call the default mechanism of wound healing in, in adults, adult mammals, humans, which is scar tissue. That's how we normally heal. Well, scar tissue isn't good enough for some locations, which is why the field of regenerative medicine exists. We want to change the default mechanism of wound healing. And so we were very lucky. And I'll credit all of the people who worked in the lab because this a tremendous amount of work got done, and graduate students and the staff at my, at my laboratory uh, were just as enthusiastic. We had collaborating surgeons coming in, and everybody was getting excited about it. And... Uh, uh, it's the type of work that um, not a single individual can do. You really need, it's a truly interdisciplinary sort of a, an approach. Do you know why this is happening? I mean, where are these signals coming from that are telling SIS to become the site-appropriate form of tissue? Well, we were so busy doing the applications research in those first five or six years that through about 1992 that, that we didn't have time to look at the mechanisms. And then it was about then that we realized uh, we're going to have to understand this, and perhaps if we understand it, we could even broaden the applications. So we did a couple of things. We started working with the extracellular matrix from other tissues to see whether we could get a similar response, and that's sort of a whole other story, but the short answer is yes. And then we started saying, what's in this matrix that makes it work? And is it what's in it? Is it its composition or is it the structure, the, the ultrastructure, the microscopic and, and submicroscopic structure that was unique? So we uh, launched a multifaceted approach looking at the composition of the matrix, the ultrastructure of the matrix, uh, and, and then the remodeling that occurs when you put it into a, a different species. 
what is the immune response to it, what types of cells uh, infiltrate this scaffold material, uh, where did the cells that infiltrate it come from, do they come from local tissues, or do they come from some other site, and why can they turn into all of these different tissue types. So and I just described literally decades worth of work there that obviously one laboratory can't do. And so we, we, we did as much as we could, and we started working with other, other people. I would estimate that there have been at least 150 different laboratories around the world with which we've worked by sending them material or giving them advice or learning from them and doing some of their experiments in a truly uh, cross-disciplinary uh, collaborative approach. When did it get to be clinically available, and how long did that journey take? And were you able to compress it as you were the, uh, the lab work at, for characterizing SIS with many collaborators across the world, all working concurrently? Well, that's, um, what, you're, what you're asking is something that right now I believe is one of the uh, most important issues in the field of regenerative medicine. We call it translational research, translating what we discover in the laboratory to patient care because uh, the th types of scientists who tend to work on this, these problems uh, aren't taught the, the steps in school that it takes to commercialize uh, a scientific discovery for patient care. Universities don't sell products. They don't uh, do the types of research to get regulatory approvals through the Food and Drug Administration or overseas. They don't, they don't uh, manufacture these types of products. So there's a lot of um, issues that needed to be addressed. And we, we were very lucky, again. Uh, and the, the, uh, we had some early industry partners that taught us a lot. The first industry partner for SIS was, was Eli Lilly, a pharmaceutical company. In the mid and late 80s, it not only was pharmaceutical, but also medical devices before they divested and split into two companies, Eli Lilly and Guidant. And it turned out that the division of Eli Lilly that was in medical devices licensed this from our laboratory and from the university and began to develop it for clinical applications, particularly blood vessels at the time. And uh, the, the, we then developed or established new industry partners uh, the, the, I, I think the most important industry partnership that we, that we established early was with uh, Depew, which is an orthopedic company that's now owned by Johnson & Johnson. And we still have an active, collaborative working relationship with them. Uh, an individual named Dick Tarr uh, at Depew in the early 90s said the future of orthopedic surgery is going to be something other than metal because most orthopedic surgeons think of artificial hips and knees mm -hmm. and joints, hardware. Yeah, yeah it's you know blacksmith-type approach. Uh, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way, but that's what uh, orthopedic surgery was. And he said, you know, this isn't always going to be like that. We're going to have to learn how to regrow soft tissues. And so he had a lot of foresight, and uh, uh, we developed a relationship with them. And through them, we, we helped establish the steps that it takes to take a material from another species source, and this happens to be harvested from the slaughterhouse of, of, of pigs that are raised in uh, special clean environments. How do you take that material that comes from the intestine, clean it, prepare it with the appropriate mechanical properties, get rid of all of the cells out of it since they would cause an adverse immune response so that you're left with just the matrix itself, 
and then package it and sterilize it? And then how do you run the test to, to, tell, to convince the FDA that this is safe to now put in humans? And how do you then educate the orthopedic community about the use of something that's new like this? And how do you package it? How do you ship it? How long can it stay on a shelf without having to be replaced? So we did shelf life studies. And uh, then, the, then the various applications and the scientific testing it takes to, to back up the, the various applications, lots of steps. And uh, without the appropriate expertise from industry, scientists such as myself could never do this. And how long did that journey take, even w- with the support from industry? The license agreement with Depew was in 1992, spring of 1992, and the first patient was treated in 1999. Oh, that's extraordinary. Great. And, and actually, I have a silly question. Why pigs? <laughs> Why not cows or sheep or well, it, horses? Or You know, we don't claim to be experts in, in anything, really. But we probably have got more expertise in the small intestinal submucosal layer of all different species than anybody else, probably because nobody else cares. <laughs> they, but we went through an exhaustive interrogation of the SIS, the small intestinal submucosa, of every species you can think of. I mean, we looked at zebras and groundhogs and prairie dogs and sheep and cows and humans and others, compared them. We know the mechanical properties, the physical properties of these. And actually, pigs are not the, the best in terms of mechanical properties. But they're plentiful. They're plentiful, <laughs> and, and there's a rich source of discarded material. I see. What is the best in terms of mechanical properties? Would you like to guess? It happens to be cats. Interesting. Cats, you know, for a long time, uh, cat gut is a oh, suture material. And tennis rackets. Tennis rackets. Were <laughs> That's right. It's the strongest SIS material. Well, obviously, there's not a source of, of cat, small intestine, that would be used for a commercial product. And the second one happened to be dogs. Huh. Uh, the third best happened to be pigs. And uh, so we picked the third best in terms of mechanical properties. And the because... best of those three choices in terms of psychology oh, <laughs> in the general public. Yeah, and, and of course, it's a, it was literally a throwaway product. Yeah. Uh, there are hundreds of thousands of, of uh, these intestines available on a daily basis just through the, you know, the pork industry. And so now we're taking, we're using a byproduct of one industry as a medical device. And uh, in a sort of interesting development, as, as we developed that and shown that it was successful, and not only because of this, other people were, were working independently in their own areas, there are now many medical devices that come from uh, human and animal tissues. Uh, there are products from uh, human skin that are used as medical devices. Uh, bovine or cow heart valves uh, or porcine heart valves uh, are used. Um, Pig skin is used for burn treatment of burn patients. And so we've learned that the the extracellular matrix, which is really the the fundamental substrate of of these products, has terrific biologic and mechanical properties uh, that we as yet have not learned how to reproduce in the laboratory. And one of the things I like to tell my laboratory is this is a classic case of of literally hundreds of millions of years of R&D. Mother Nature's gone and say, we want to produce the ideal scaffold. And so what we do is just take advantage of that. We harvest it instead of trying to reproduce it. 
We've, we're not even close to being able to reproduce the natural extracellular matrix yet. Right. And actually, I want to take a step back. Even though this is derived from pigs, and I, there are similar products now derived from cows, and I don't know if there are other species involved as well, um, but it's pretty much devoid of any remaining pig properties. I mean, it's, as you said, it's sterilized, it's reduced of pig cells so that it's just that those structural properties that are that we actually have in common, the collagens and the proteins with pigs. Is that right? So that our listeners don't assume they're having actual pig cells. Um, <laughs> no, that's exactly perhaps right. Perhaps implanted into them. Because everybody knows you, we can't even um, uh, um, transplant a kidney from one person to another easily. We have to get proper matching and all that. And that's because of the cells that constitute those organs. And certainly if you try to go from one species to another, it's these things are immediately rejected by the body. But almost all of the reasons for rejection are, are because of the uh, surface characteristics of the cells that occupy those organs. So we get rid of all of the cells. We decellularize the small intestine, for example, if, if that's the matrix that we're, we're using. And uh, we're left with the what's called extracellular matrix. Stuff between the cells. The outside of the cell matrix. Yeah, these are, And as it turns out... Uh, most of the of the molecules that compro- compose the extracellular matrix have a, a very common structure between species, particularly collagen, which is the main structural protein. It's also got functional properties, but the collagen that you and I have is almost identical to that in a pig or a cow or even a plant. And it's it's proven to be such a valuable molecule that through evolution it's been very highly conserved. And so when you take collagen from one species and put it in another, it is either not recognized as foreign at all or very, very minimally. And the same is true for a lot of the other molecules in the matrix. That's how we get away with it, so to speak. And now that we've covered all those bases in terms of its safety and non-pigness, what is it indeed used for in the clinic these days? Well, uh, it's used for almost every SIS, which is the first generation extracellular matrix scaffold, uh, is used, has, I think it's like 16 separate allowances through the Food and Drug Administration now. It's used to construct uh, portions of the lower urinary tract and and treat uh, women with postmenopausal urinary incontinence, for example. It's used a lot in uh, patients with skin, chronic non-healing skin ulcers like diabetic foot ulcers and venous stasis ulcers. It's used to reconstruct uh, portions of the central nervous system, particularly the lining. It's called the dura mater, the, the lining in the brain by neurosurgeons. It's used a lot by orthopedic surgeons to reconstruct ligaments and tendons all over the body, particularly the shoulder, the rotator cuff, and the Achilles tendon, and it goes on and on. And we, we are trying to optimize all of these different applications, and what that's led to is our understanding of, of the matrix from different tissues, and now there are second and third generation products that are following SIS. I'm trying to imagine what this looks like. Is it like the the Johnson & Johnson Band-Aid I get in the little wax wrapper that, you know, that peels apart and I take out a patch of SIS? Or does my doctor do that in the operating room and just sort of... Well, if you think of the structure of the intestine, it's a tube, right? So by the time we remove the other layers, we still got a tube, but now it's a, a tube of only matrix. Mm-hmm. And it, it can't do much with a tube. So it's slid open into a sheet, then formed a sheet. Now you, now you can take this sheet and either use it as such 
for example, treating a topical wound, mm-hmm. or you can try to configure it into the into a tendon type of a structure, and you can put multiple layers of it together. For example, there's ten layers in the in the material that is used to replace the rotator cuff tendons in, for orthopedic surgeons because it needs that type of mechanical strength. So this is where the sort of the engineering part of tissue engineering, yeah. uh, the term tissue engineering comes, uh, turning it into the appropriate structure. We can make a powder out of it. Uh, we can even turn it into a gel. Uh, so we've learned a lot about We've gotten quite creative. Okay, so as long as you have those building blocks of collagen and the other special stuff in extracellular matrix, you can form it and press it and laminate it and put it into the shape you want it to be, and then it's being signaled somehow to grow into the appropriate tissue, depending That's right. on where and, it's And in put. fact... One of the keys in the remodeling process is that this is nothing other than a very temporary, as you put it earlier, environment for for good wound healing, for optimal wound healing. It very rapidly is degraded by the host in which you place it. Usually within 60 to 75 days, it's totally gone. Wow. So all we are doing is, is saying, let's change the wound healing response here. And when it's degraded, it releases these signals, but then it goes away. And now the body has brought in new cells, they, they make a new matrix that is site-appropriate. You know, the, like I told you earlier, the urinary bladder forms or a tendon or whatever, but the original scaffold material is gone. And in patients, I, I realize it's been used clinically for just about a decade or so now? Uh, well, Less? 1999 were the first patients, but it really was about 2000, 2001 when it started seeing a lot it's of patients. It's just about a half a decade. But yeah. are you seeing five years, six years out now, the same mechanical properties in those regenerated tissues as you would in natural tissues? Are, are there new rotator cuffs as strong as, as original rotator that's cuffs? That's an excellent question, and that's what orthopedic surgeons ask all the time. <clears throat> so those studies are in progress in human patients. We know in animal patients, animal studies, the preclinical studies, that what you just said is true. It remodels into tissue that has normal properties for that tissue. For obvious reasons, it's more difficult to, to answer your question definitively in people. If, if a person's rotator cuff is replaced by SIS and then they do fine, it's very tough to get them to agree five years later to come in and say, let's sample your rotator cuff. And, and that's a good thing. Uh, you know, we, we don't want to have to be going back into patients. But in the areas that we can do that and everything we've looked at, the results seem to be tracking our preclinical animal studies very nicely. Great. Yeah, the, the remodeling seems to be very site appropriate and sufficient to do the job. It looks like normal, acts like normal, smells like normal tissue. Good. Okay. I love this story of um, having accelerated, you know, several decades worth of work because you had a global team, you know, concurrently working all at once. I think it's a great model for what we hope to be modern era of research. So. I want to thank you for joining us today, Dr. Badalak. Oh, you're very welcome. We'll help, hope to have you back sometime to talk about some of your further work. Thank you. Thanks, Leah. That was certainly a fascinating discussion with Dr. Badalak. For those of you interested in learning more about Dr. Badalak's work, please see the links to his website at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. Now I'd like to tell our listeners about a meeting this spring of researchers and physicians who are moving this field forward. The Regenerate World Congress on Tissue Engineering and Regenerative Medicine will be held April 24 to 27 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. 
We'll be providing coverage of the new science and medicine announced at this year's Regenerate World Congress. Or if you have an interest in attending the meeting yourself, you can find details about registration on the web at www.ptei.org. Leah, please share with our listeners what the next podcast is going to cover. In podcast number four, Dr. Frederick Schoen, a Harvard pathologist, will tell us about the large effort to produce heart valves at the lab bench. These are important to replace those that are defective or diseased. That's podcast number four, coming in late February. Uh, to our listeners, if you have ideas for future podcasts or you'd just like to give us some feedback, please send us an email. The address is mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. We can't reply to individual emails, but we do welcome your suggestions. And let me remind you that we are not physicians and we cannot provide diagnoses or medical advice. Thank you, Leah. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast and encourage you to stay subscribed to the RSS feed at this podcast website, www.regenerativemedicinetoday.com. And also visit the website to get links to our guest uh, interviews. We look forward to visiting with you again in uh, podcast number four in a few weeks. Until then, best wishes, and thank you for listening.